listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week August 7 to August 11. And what a week it was. We had Judy Ryan in from Residence for Victoria Street Drug Solutions talking about the push for safe injecting rooms. And we had a bit of a chat about times when you're fed food that you really don't want to eat, but you shove it down your gob out of politeness anyway. With disgusting results. (laughs) We also spoke about auctions, whether we like them, what happens at them, and uh, various hijinks pertaining to them. And then Dr. Jen came in for Weird Science, talked about imposter syndrome, that feeling you have when you're about to be found out as a fraud. It's coming to me right now. (laughs) Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The March to Save Lives Rally for a Medically Supervised Injecting Centre is an event taking place on the 27th of August in Victoria Street, North Richmond. Judy Ryan is a spokesperson for Residents for Victoria Street Drug Solutions, the group behind the rally. She's joining us in the studio now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Um, Perhaps we can start by getting you to, to tell us about the situation with drug use in Richmond. We've heard that over the past two years there's been an explosion of heroin use in the suburb. What's happened? Why Why Richmond? Well, firstly, why Richmond, Jeff, is that, uh, look, for decades it's been an issue there. I used to live there quite a few years ago when I was at uni and um, drug use has always been prolific around there and it's got a lot to do with its location, Uh, lots of public transport, trains, trams, buses, uh, lots of little laneways for people to sneak up and and inject, and also the busyness of the street really lends itself to people sort of becoming a bit anonymous. Um, But the last few years have become, I mean, I've been there for five years, and the last two to three years have become quite uh, significant in terms of the escalating drug use. Look, I just think uh, heroin and other prescription drugs and other methamphetamines, they've just become commonplace. It's just a regular uh, thing that people do. And because of the uh, layout of North Richmond, it it's just an easy place to distribute this stuff and for people to use it. So that's why it's the hotspot and always has been. Because we, we were talking off air about the gentrification of some of the other yeah. suburbs where that were associated with heroin you think of Footscray or Collingwood Smith Street, or Smith yeah, Street. Yeah. and those places now seem to be very mm. different has that all moved to Richmond yeah or? I think a lot of it has too um, those places um, still have issues I think I don't think we're the only one and a lot of people say to me you know you should be getting supervised injecting centres in Dandenong Springvale St Kilda Footscray and I think let's just get one yeah um, <laughs> we've been wanting one or we were promised one about 18 years ago by the uh, Brack Labor government. In fact, we they promised five, and we don't have one. So oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. So so I think let's get one. We'll prove that it works, not just for the people who use drugs and saving lives, but it will clear up the amenity of the area, take the pressure off residents who are quite traumatised by what they see every day. I can remember debating in high school about supervised injecting rooms under the Brax government. And at the time, it seemed like they were 
just not that far off. What has stopped them from being trialled in Victoria over the last 18 years? Oh, lack of courage, Sarah. Mm. I, I mean, I can't... I can't um, especially since Sydney has been operating for 16 years. And look, I get that back in the late 1990s, it was a new frontier for harm reduction measures in Australia. Uh, but now we have, Melbourne has for Sydney to, you know, as a precedent. And across Europe and Scandinavian countries, somewhere in some places in the UK, they're also successful and they're successful because they're all evidence-based and people go in there to to inject. They're resuscitated if they overdose, and then they're provided with rehab opportunities. And my my uh, belief, of course, is that you have to be alive to be rehabilitated. I mean, we have so many people overdosed and dying in our little neck of the woods, and it, it's that's all over for them. And they're young people, you know, and then, you know, in their 40s, and that's young too. And you just think, these are preventable deaths. They just, and if you've, I've been to Sydney, and if you overdose, you are resuscitated with oxygen, and if you need a bit of naloxone or Narcan, it's injected and you, you come, come through, and then they take you. And this is the key thing, and I think we need to get away from shooting galleries and, words like that because yeah. they're actually supervised so they go from injecting to the anti-room where they're given the support and they all want it and interestingly and this is a key feature of the residence group we get to know these people who are injecting in our laneways and our front gardens you know they're just nice people uh, and they're sick and we say to them you know I'm Judy from the residence group and we're trying to establish a trial that's all we're wanting here a trial of a supervised injecting centre, would you use it? And they all say yes. They all say yes. So what would such a centre involve? I mean, would it require a change in the legislation to... I mean, presumably police wouldn't be arresting people who were using drugs there. And would it also be open for other drugs as well? Yeah. So um, it takes uh, a change in the legislation to the current um, Act that um, prohibits drug use and... But in Sydney, what they did was just an amendment to that Act, saying that in this particular place it was legal to inject and be supervised. Uh, So it's actually, I should say, quite straightforward. But uh, I know Fiona Patton's private member's bill addresses that issue. Uh, In terms of the police, look, until you get to the doorway of the supervised injecting centre, you are actually in possession of an illegal substance. So it takes a bit of a leap of faith for police to say, okay, we know where those people are going. They've come off North Richmond Station. That's where they're going. We'll just let them go. And that's what happened in Sydney. The local area commanding King's Cross knew that that's where people were going, but they realised that it was a measure that needed to be trialled. They wanted it to work for their own benefit. And they look, most emergency services, police, ambulance, um, emergency service um, health professionals know that this is an illness. And like a lot of people who are trying to get off an addiction, and I know that I gave up smoking about mm. 20 years ago, and I know that I still would not have one cigarette because if I did, I'd be beholden to the whole debacle again. So it's hard work and you need people to work with you. And the issue with illegal substances is that they are illegal. So where do you go? You know, Mm. we're so bad at blaming people. It's their choice, but we cut funding to outreach workers in community health centres. Where are the great rehab services in our state? I, I just think we can't have it both ways. You can't blame people and, you know, shut TAFE so kids haven't got anywhere to go. And it's just... 
we just don't do this stuff well in our country. You talked, sorry, you talked about in, um, you went and visited in Sydney. Um, what have been some of the, the, the benefits of, that they've noticed up there and changes? Well, Geraldine, the biggest benefit is no deaths. I mean, that There's has been to none. Be none in 16 years. You know, that is, and, and they've had heaps of overdoses, mm. but not one person has died. Now, I just think, I can tell you the others, and I will, but that for us That's is enough. the key. That's mm. enough. And uh, I'm not going to talk about the critics because they cherry pick things, but, you know, they, one of the issues is how many people then go from rehab um, referrals to actually taking them up. And, you know, people, the naysayers, oh, you know, only 12% actually move on to that next stage. Well, who cares? 12% is better than none. Mm. And saving all lives is better than what we've got at the moment. Mm. But another really key, excuse me, feature of Sydney was, uh, and this as far as the community goes, within three weeks of it opening, three weeks, Mm. the the calculation of the call-outs of ambulance services dropped by 80%. 80%. Now, I can tell you as a resident of Abbotsford, we just hear ambulances all the time and mm. they are close friends of ours. You know, we've got to know them. We work together. We're, we're all first responders and they want it. You know, I was with a woman who died in Victoria Street mm about three months ago and it was just it, I just looked at this woman lying there it was so undignified and she um, her partner was I was holding him he was hysterical and the ambulance turned up two mica units an ambulance and an MFB truck because they're first responders so four units as taxpayers right four mm. units each of them with at least two people so that's eight people working on this woman she died and I said to the paramedic this is Melbourne this is happening yeah. in Melbourne. You know, I, it's not Mogadishu, it's <laughs> Melbourne. And the guy, this guy said to me, it's insane. So they totally support this stuff. It's Look, interesting because there's been some unlikely supporters. I know Jeff Kennett is um, a big supporter of this based on the evidence that's come out of the King's Cross injecting rooms. Daniel Andrews doesn't seem to be shifting on this because he has this hard-on-crime line at the moment. What do you think the chances are of this getting through. Yes, Sarah, it's a really interesting point. We, we always look for little nuanced comments from our uh, elected leaders that are supposed to look after the citizens of this state. Um, we know that uh, the law and order thing is a mantra that mm. uh, both Matthew Guy and we're not letting the coalition get away with this. This is a We want a bipartisan approach to this. We need them to lay down their tools, look at the evidence across the world, but also listen to pe- key people. Well, Jeff Kennett, obviously, but another one most recently is Ken Lay. Ken Lay, a police commissioner, came out two weeks ago and said, these people are not criminals. We should be wrapping our services around them. We were too soft on this issue. We didn't get it done. Now, when you've got people like that, Ron Idle's another super cop in Victoria, most respected. As he walked out the door, as I often do at one minute to midnight, when he was <laughs> secretary of the police union, said, we've got to do this. You know, we've got senior legal people, medical people, uh, the residents want it. 
Um, the people who use drugs want it. And one of the other fantastic byproducts of this campaign um, is for the residents is that we've been contacted by a lot of families who've been impacted by this, you know, the death of their loved ones. And they are people's loved ones. You know, they're mm. sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And in one instance, we've got a beautiful grandfather in Ocean Grove who's just... It's destroyed his life that his beautiful 27-year-old grandson died in a laneway near me. Mm. You know, it's just... And, and the other thing is, you know, the kids who do who work at Hungry Jacks and Maccas after school in our area and find people overdosed in the toilets. It's, it's the ripple effect of this is just... It's out of control. And until it impacts on our elected leaders, you know... I, I, in answer to your question, I think that there is a change there in Dan Andrews' language. I mean, we hammer the fact that he changed his mind on end-of-life legislation when mm. he saw his father's drawn-out death. Um, I think it's a pity that our elected leaders have to experience something themselves in order to be more empathetic to the community, but that was what happened there. He changed his mind. We know that there is uh, Fiona Patton's private members bill. The report on that will be tabled on the 5th of September. Uh, the government has three months to respond to that, so we're hoping that by the, 12, uh, the 5th of December we might have a bit of a change in, in attitude to this because it cannot go on um, that we will tolerate or that our leaders will tolerate this when everybody else, all the... All the experts, including the experts at the coalface, which is us, want one. In the meantime, the rally is taking place on the 27th of August in Victoria Street, North Richmond. That's the March to Save Lives. We've been talking to one of the organisers, Judy Ryan, from Residents for Victoria Street Drug Solutions. Thanks so much for coming in. Can I just quickly, before I go, plug our website? Yes. It's got all the information to buy T-shirts about the rally. Anything you need to know is www.vicstreetdrugsolutions.com. Dot org. It's got everything you need to know. Thank you. Right, thank you. You're triple R. Three triple R. Hey, you're on Triple R with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. We'd usually be talking books now, but we're going to have a break from that today and I would like to ask you both a question instead. Yep. Oh, what's the question? The question is, what is the most... What like what is the worst food you've eaten out of kind of pressure that you had to eat it? Oh, everything my mum ever cooked for me as a child. Oh, oh. Whoa. Whoa. that's harsh. Yeah, poor mum. <laughs> no. Uh, Do you know what I mean? You know when you're at someone's house or, or you're yeah. trying to be polite, you're at an event and someone offers you something and you say yes, and then you I go. Feel oh. it's more like, more the other way around. I've cooked something for people and they have to eat it out of politeness. What 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 have you cooked? <laughs> Every time Steph comes around for dinner, I feel it's a bit like that. Do you? Is that because you go down the street and get a couple of dimmies and come back? <laughs> Put them in the oven? Roast dimmies? No, I think that would be a Steph thought if I did that. Um, actually, I do have um, one story about when I was in Egypt and um, that you get lots of warnings about, you know, that people, a lot of people get sick, you know, and you should be kind of careful about eating salads in particular. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was with a bunch of people and I had one day to myself and I went off to buy some food and I sat... I completely forgot all the warnings and I sat down and I ordered this dinner and it was a fish dinner and I started eating it and then they brought out a salad and I started eating that and then I suddenly remembered the oh, warnings no. I was halfway through <laughs> and I thought, I can't... I've You know, they've brought out all this food for me. I can't not eat it now. Yeah. I've got to push on through and eat it all. 
Which I did. And did you get sick? Oh, yeah. I could fly up the sick. For days. Oh, no. It was the worst. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's never be polite. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I reckon you could have gotten away with not eating I at all. I felt like it was too late then anyway. If I was already going to be infected, I was going to be infected. I was well enjoy just... the... It was nice, you know. I was having a nice meal in this restaurant by myself. Were you eating out of politeness or were you just... Greed. Yeah, you were just hungry, I weren't was, you? Yeah. yeah. Punch out of hands. <laughs> <laughs> they were out <laughs> grabbing salad. Uh, I similar like when traveling is the the most times this happened. I had a similar thing in Mexico where I was out. A bunch of us, me and a couple of friends, were out, and we met this guy who was like the world weary traveler. You know, mm. those that horrible cliche. Some American dude that had been traveling the world for eight years, and he was like, "I eat street food." Like all those people in that jungle movie we saw. Yes, exactly like that. You know, I eat street food. You got to like get down with the street food. And I was like, "Yeah, okay," and didn't want to look uncool and ate a a street taco and again was violently ill for four days and thought that wasn't worth trying to look cool to, <laughs> to the to the world weary American traveller. Uh, and he also had a, a shot of, we had like a shootout fight with Mescal as well. He's like, oh. you're just you're going to be tough and you have some Mescal. I think, I don't know what made me see the taco. I, I feel taco. like I could just imagine this guy that oh. like had those those sort of happy pants and like a, one of those belts around his waist. 100% and yeah. he's always, he had glasses, he was always reading but I don't think he was actually reading the book and then on the last night cracked onto us all. You know, and that guy, he was like, yeah, I just like, and it's like, oh, no, you just wanted to, yeah. Uh, but the worst one was when we were in Cuba, we were staying in, so this is pre, so some of Fidel was still alive and things were a little bit more restricted there and we were staying in Casa de Particulars. Anyway, you stay in oh, people's yeah. houses and uh, you just kind of travel around the country and one person refers you to the next person, like their cousin's house, and you stay and you pay to stay in their house and they'll you have meals with them at home. And um, I like old school Airbnb. It is like oh yeah, it's like the original Airbnb. Yeah. And you you know the whoever was staying with you, like their cousin would then drive you to the next town as well. Like it was it was a great way to get around. But there was one place we were staying in, and in Cuba, it used to be illegal to serve Westerners lobster because it was seen as we we. It's really common there, but it was considered really decadent for. Say oh. for Westerners, so you weren't meant to feed them uh, a food that they considered decadent. Like it was this strange. But we were staying in this place, and it was there was heaps of seafood, which I don't do very well with anyway. I think mm. I might be mildly allergic to it because it makes my lips tingle. Anyway, so we were yeah, saying that's a good song. Yeah, and we we were staying with these people who were lovely, and you're just so conscious of the fact that they don't have a lot of money, and you're paying to be in their house and stuff. And they served up an entree for us, and it was um, fish head soup and. Oh my! And it was there was oh, there was mate. there was fish heads in the soup, and it was I can't even I didn't know I actually didn't know what to do. So we were sitting there, and we could see the fish heads and bobbing oh, about, yeah, bobbing about, <laughs> and well, there was nothing we could do. Like no, there was nothing. So all all three of us sat there, kind of eating our fish head soup, and I tried to eat as much as would be deemed polite. Yeah, and at the whole time, I was like, I actually think. I actually think I'm gonna have to leave the room. You're just eating the broth. The broth. You're not. Yeah. You're not eating the fish. But I just. I can't even tell you how we got through it. And then we got to the end of it, and they cleared. They cleared the plates, and the lovely woman who was looking after us and who kind of was cooking dinner with us. She, she goes, "Oh, who would like another bowl of fish soup?" And I said, "No, thank you. It was lovely. Thank you. No, I'll, I'll just wait for the main. Thank you." And my other friend said, "No, thank you." But my, no, sorry, no. I was about to say no, thank you. But the first, my first friend said yes. I'll have another bowl of fish soup because she she felt so guilty about not accepting the fish again. So she said yes, and then we all said no, and then she, we had to watch her eat another bowl of fish. Oh head soup. no! What was she thinking? What? 
Because oh. she felt like she was kind of, you know, was it, obliged to eat. You know, she's, was it nice or once you got over the fishiness of I, it? I mean, I'm not a, you know, some people are. Uh, yeah, right. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not good with fishy water. Like that's what it, no, you know. But, but I guess soup, fish head soup really is fishy water. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And like, and it was nothing. Oh, anyway, but you felt terrible because you just felt like I'm this horrible person with this mind. I can't judge you in your food, you know, but yeah, oh my yeah. god, yeah. Fish head soup, oh mate, I would have cried. Yeah, it was pretty upsetting. I did that um, when we were in, um, it's another travel story, but I was in Portugal and uh, Kath and I uh, were with her host family. She lived in Belgium for a year and we were all met up in, in Portugal. Lovely, right? And, but we went out for this dinner, this seafood dinner and I just... All the seafood that came out was just so confronting, like, you know. Oh, it's always seafood. It's always faces yeah, on it and stuff. And I just go, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't do it. And I just remember eating all the vegetables and, and stuff and just being like, I can't, I'm so sorry. No. And just, you know, having you to go outside and cry. In, it's like, uh, it's. When you're getting hospitality overseas, you feel like you really just don't have a choice. When I was in Russia and we'd gone, I was researching my book, and we'd gone to visit this gulag, which is the one gulag you could you could see in Russia. And it was pretty emotional. It was a horrible, horrible place. Mm. And the guy had been there. I didn't know this, but he told me the, all these stories about how his father had actually been incarcerated. And it was, it was incredibly, and, you know, and then he pulled over for lunch to buy us lunch. And then he pulled out a bottle of vodka you know, this is the middle of the day or whatever, mm. and um, said, oh, we'll have a drink, you know, because it's been this oh, sort of emotional... You can't say no to vodka in Russia. No, it's you like can't say no so to vodka. Yeah. And then he pours us all a glass, which is sort of like a coffee, you know, like a coffee cup full yeah. of vodka. Yeah. And then we drink that. And, um, you know, it's, he's a lovely man and he's telling us all these stories. And then he says, in Russia, we always drink to the Trinity, which means you oh have God. three, three. three glasses <laughs> Oh, mate. And this is the first one. <laughs> so we work our way through the entire bottle and then we get into the car and we're going down the highway. And I'm in the back seat, so I just sort of slump into a daze. But they all start singing old Soviet songs. Wow. As, I mean, um, yeah, it, was, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> so that one was all right. Better <laughs> than fish head soup. Three. Triple. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine here on Triple R. Uh, have I told you how much I, I love auctions? I love yeah, it. No. This is new. Like house auctions? It was auctions of any all kind. The, all the auctions. <laughs> really? Why? Silent auctions. <laughs> house auctions. <laughs> what else? Other auctions. <laughs> <laughs> love what, it. What, auction. what, what sparked this? I don't know. Maybe it's because, you know. Have I, you been to one recently? Okay, so I, the gig that I did on um, Saturday night was the, the uh, like a school fundraiser, and they and I walked ah. I walked in. I went, oh, you've got a silent auction, love it. And I it's the last couple of gigs I've been doing, they've had silent auctions. Now, I just, yeah, tell me what a silent, a silent auction. auction is. That means you just write down. Yeah, you just write it down. What you'd pay on a bit of paper and put it in a box or something. No, no, no. It's it doesn't have to be in a box. You just they just have a sheet of paper and um say the auction up for item uh, auction item is like a a coffee machine. Mm. So yeah. you'd go that down and good. yeah, I I put a bid on one of those and you write down your name and how much you would pay for it and then and then someone else might come along and go, 
Oh, no, I'll bid more than that. Oh, no, but they get to see what you've bid. Yeah. Oh, oh. so it's just like up there and people just wander up and... Yeah, yeah, so they oh. just have it open all, all night to a certain time and then um, and then you can... Whoever's last on the list, whoever bids the most, gets it. Oh. It's great. And it's like they set cut-off time, like at 5 o'clock. That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Oh. So oh, you hover around the thing that you want and then... Oh. I'd got a table at a gig that I did last year... I did a beautiful handmade um, table uh, and so I'd put my bid on and a couple other people were putting bids on and then I, at about 10 to, like before the cut-off time, I just lingered around it and then just stood in front of it so no one could come and put another oh, bid on. smart one. It's yeah. like on eBay when you're buying things on eBay, you wait to the last... Three seconds and yeah. put your bid on really quickly. No, there's actually just little. You know that there's like bots that do that for you. No, I didn't yeah, know you, yeah. Just you don't have to see. They use program it, and yeah. then you go well, to sleep and you make it. Well, it just guarantees that you get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, most of the things I buy, I don't actually want. <laughs> just like the thrill of the chase. <laughs> what was that weird thing that you bought off eBay? Didn't you buy? Oh, it? Well, where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> have you been to his house? <laughs> no, um, but you love an auction. I do. I mum and I. I've uh, been to um, an antique auction place. We oh, go so this is what I want to do. Uh, ah, so I love you go, that. you go. I think that yeah, they have that showroom open on like the Wednesday or whatever, and you go around and you look at all the stuff, and, and they've got like back. guide prices, and you come back like on the I think it's on the Thursday or the Friday. They do the actual the auction. auction. Yeah, go, yeah. yeah. I want a box full of old camcorders that don't work. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but it's also that's the thing that there are people because a lot of people go at dealers, right? Mm. And so they're really into the auctions and they know all about it. So you got to be really careful because you can be like often they'll just flick a finger. You know ah. what I mean? So I always end up feeling like I can't. I'm too scared to move at all in case the auctioneer thinks. Oh that, yeah, you can't know, swat a fly. Thousand dollars for yeah. some, you know, you stuffed in. moose head or something. Uh, my one later in his life, Dad was uh, did security clearing sales oh. in the country. So they're awesome because it's where a farm's being sold or whatever, you essentially go along and a company puts on a clearing sale for you and you just drag all your shit out and put it in a paddock and people come around. And they're really popular with antique dealers and stuff because get all the old, yeah. farm, all the old farm stuff and people don't know what stuff's worth. But, like, my dad was a hoarder quite badly and, like, ine- inevitably he would buy half the stuff at every auction. Like, he was meant to be doing security and every <laughs> every week he'd be like, look at this thing from the 1820s or this spool or, you know, and he... I think I've told you before that he, he went into, into this fierce bidding war for a massive bellows, which I don't know if you know what bellows yes. are. Yeah. Oh. yeah. They, they start fires, but they were, like, three metres high. Oh, they were these giant <laughs> bellows. Those, those big fan things yeah. that you squeeze yeah, together. You squeeze to, together I, I to feel fan. like you've got to go to one of these antique, that <laughs> the was antique like, auctions. They're full of stuff like that. I was the most, that was the worst thing he ever brought home. And my brother had been with him at the time and said that he saw the guy that had dragged the bellows in and he was the one bidding off with dad and my brother was trying to tell him like that's the guy that owns the bellows and he's making you go higher and higher dad spent like three grand on <laughs> sure he didn't have do you reckon that's why they kept giving him gigs doing security yeah. <laughs> the word ran around clear it oh, out. Mr Smith will put yeah. <laughs> Kevin will clear it out far out those bellows they sat there in the corner in our garage for four years that's so funny what is it what's it why it's so big are they just ornamental or is it just to get a bushfire I going <laughs> I think it was from another time we had to start giant fires to burn things in. I I don't know. Celia and I were talking last night. We had a brief conversation last night about 
auctions and she's like she finds it just bizarre that people would like at a house auction that people will stand in the street and go yep i've got that much money like she found, finds the whole the public display of how much money you've got and it actually is strange now i think about it? it yeah I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, because it's so rude to say to someone, how much do you earn or how how much do you pay for that? Yet we'll stand next to a stranger and be like, my million dollars. Yeah. When when I was living in Braybrook, like that was a very poor suburb. It still, still kind of is, but it's not actually that far from the city. Mm. And so the prices were starting to go up because it's one of the last places that people could kind of buy. And whenever there was an auction in the street, there'd be all... Uh, Locals. Well, yeah, they'd, so the bill of developers and the people, you know, the young couples, professionals wanting to buy these, but all the locals would come and stand around them too. And you would get these sort of two groups of people. So there'd be all the dealers ah. and, and then there would be all the locals who'd be saying, they'd be staring at each other and say, you know, we bought this place for 10 grand. <laughs> you, can you believe people are paying so much money for wow. it? Wow. Uh, my dad also used to like to go to auctions in our area and just yell out things about the about the property what? that he might know. We thought he had all the knowledge. Like I remember being at a, a auction in our area for a place that he he knew there was like a water issue down the back of the house, and during the auction he was like, "Do you know about the old creek down the back of the house?" <laughs> Did he? Yeah, what? during the auction. During whose auction it was, was it? True. I was one. He was a person that lived in our area too. It always caused us a bit of trouble. What? So just to ruin things. Yeah, we just we were actually to be honest. He was he was truthful. He was right. There was an old creek down the back of the house that they had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the real estate agent must oh, have loved it. It was like, was like a, a local truth teller. This was his favourite thing around on Saturdays. Kevin walking around the block, ruining. So do you know options. about the bad stumps on this place? <laughs> Three triple R. for Weird Science here on Breakfasters with Dr. Jen. How are you going, Dr. Jen? Good morning. I'm feeling like an imposter. No, you're I not. I shouldn't be here. I don't know what I'm doing. I know nothing. You uh, look like an imposter. Off Do you go. I? No, thanks. no. <laughs> thanks Where's so the real Dr. Jen? <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's, she's next to having a coffee, I think. <laughs> it's funny though, isn't it? Because when I came in and, and made that joke, you're like, yeah, well, we all feel like that. Everybody feels like that. But do you mm. think most people realise that, that... You know, it's entirely normal to feel that way, this feeling of, I'm a fraud, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm incompetent, I'm inadequate. It's just, you know, I'm just waiting for somebody to come and tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you, you shouldn't be here, you don't know anything, get out of here. I think I only realise that when I have conversations, like I have conversations with Jeff and Geraldine about this very (laughs) thing and say, I feel like an imposter, I can't do this thing. And then I find out that other people feel like that and I go, oh. So maybe that's the issue because you guys have talked about it because I find that a lot of people... You know, one of the biggest issues with this whole thing, which we call imposter syndrome, is people think it's just them. They think mm. the constant reel of self-doubt, you know, the monologue in their own heads telling them how crap they are, that mm. it's it's unique to them. And it turns I thought out, it was unique to me. Yeah, mm. but yeah. it's not. Is, it, is there a difference between just feeling a bit insecure about your job and, like, imposter syndrome in the sense of 
I'm a total fraud that someone is going to expose? I mean, uh, or is it just a scale? I think it's just a scale. So the first thing to say is it's actually misnamed because syndrome has a, you know, a technical medical meaning and, mm. and this doesn't actually qualify as a syndrome. So the person who, who coined the term, which was back in the 1970s, um, a psychologist called Pauline Rose Clance, she said if she could have her time again, she'd go back and rename it the imposter experience rather than the, the imposter syndrome because it's not a medical definition, it's not a mental illness um, and everybody experiences. But I think your question is a good one, Jeff, and it's a scale. And Clance actually has a has a, um, a test you can take. If you want to go onto my blog, she's got a 20-question test with a whole series of statements where you select anything from um, you know never, rarely, through to extremely commonly in terms of how you feel about a whole lot of statements and you come up with a number and that number tells you to what degree you experience the imposter syndrome. And it can be just you know occasionally through to severely and probably having a you know a debilitating effect on your life but the other point is you don't have to experience it all the time so statistics suggest that 70 percent of people will experience it at some point um, because it tends to be in situations where you're doing something new you know, yeah, you're yeah. In a new situation, a new job, or you know things like mature age students offer experience it really very strongly. So they've been doing something else for however long, then they come back to study and feel like total frauds, as though they don't have the right to be in that lecture theatre or that classroom uh, or that sort of thing. Whereas the other kids are probably all thinking, "God, they know so much." Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's the whole point that that somebody who feels like, <clears throat> excuse me, an imposter in this situation, there can be abundant objective evidence to show just how capable and successful they are. But for whatever reason, you just don't internalise it. You don't pay attention to it. You know, you desperately seek praise and and recognition from people. But then when you get it, you actually feel uncomfortable about it because you don't think you deserve it. Yes. So what is the uh, cure, I suppose, to imposter syndrome? Is there one? Uh, I don't really think there is a cure. So we've been studying it since the 70s. So the you know, the first paper that came out, as I said, was 78. And that was a study of several hundred high achieving women. So originally, it was argued that this was only an experience for women. Um, But since then, it's been shown that that's not at all the case, that it's, you know, both men and women experience it. People in any profession can experience it. There's a whole lot of kind of characteristics that go along with it. So as well as feeling like an imposter, you probably have some anxiety, you're probably a perfectionist, you probably procrastinate a bit, you probably fear failure. You know, there's all these other things that kind of go along with it. Jez is nodding to you. You tick all those boxes. Um, well, we probably, most of us tick all of those boxes at yeah. some point. I mean, the, the cure, one of the things that's funny about it, the irony is you would think as you become more experienced and more respected and potentially more senior in whatever your job is, then you would think imposter syndrome would go away, yeah? Mm. But it's actually the opposite because the more senior you get, the more you find yourself doing new things all the time and Uh. being requested to try, you know, to to lend your hand to some new role, new task, new experience. So the more senior you get, often the more often you're finding yourself winging it in some, you know, different circumstance you've been in before. So just getting more experienced actually doesn't help at all. It's no cure, which is kind of sad. Is there a name for the opposite? I mean, I know... Arrogance. Well, yeah, you know, when you're in a a job and there's some people who just feel, they just, I don't know, like they just feel they're entitled to everything. They can take on a job. But do you think they really do or are they overcompensating for feelings of being an imposter? Because I find that really an interesting question. You Mm. know, do people genuinely feel... I think some people do. Yeah, I think okay. I've worked with people who I, I think are genuinely yeah, arrogant. Not, I think mm. arrogant is the word, you know, very yeah. confident in their own Even being. when they're not confident. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's the thing, isn't it? That generally, you know, if you experience imposter syndrome, you're probably not only just quite competent, you're probably actually a very high achiever. My favourite quote I came across in all of the reading I did about this was from a respected researcher in the field who said, um, imposterism is most often found among extremely talented and capable individuals, not people who are true imposters. Oh. So we can all take it to heart that if we feel like imposters, we're probably really bloody good at our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> How good is that? It's very good. So what what really do you good feel if you're a really poster? <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> actually, don't have that medical qualification. You're cutting over yeah. someone's brain. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Because it's it's a great realization to say everybody experiences this. You know, everybody has this. If I talked about it, if I just if I was just more open with the people I work with, I would discover that even the most senior, highly respected, amazing people all feel like imposters and that's very good so that's one of the cures right is to talk about it more but if you follow that through a few steps of logic that means that the pipe you know pilots flying our planes the people performing heart surgery everyone in government you know everybody who's doing important roles if they all just feel like they're winging it what what does that say about about the state of the world we're we're all just winging it that's okay (laughs) we're all in it together that's right we're all just doing our best and hoping things will turn out fine do we know why though is there something biologically about humans that makes us feel like we're pretending constantly? Well, I think it's a few things. I think it's partly because we pay a lot of attention to what goes on in our own heads and we're not very good at perceiving what's going on in other people's mm. heads. Yeah, so we right. think it's just us because you're listening to your little, you know, negative monologue. I think because we do so much comparing and I'm sure social media has made it worse. You know, you know all the warts and all of your life, but you only see the highlights reel of everybody True. else's lives. So that's a big issue. There's a few theories out there about upbringing, you know, depending on how achievement focused your family was, <clears throat> perhaps if you had a sibling who could do no wrong and you feel like no matter what you do, you're never going to you know, match up to their achievements. There's, there's lots of theories out there, but I think it's just a, a human phenomenon that wow. we, you know, we all are at risk of experiencing this. And the main thing you do is just say, oh, well, I'm doing fine. No one else knows what they're doing either. Get on I, with it. I yeah. do think it, it does make a, a big difference the, when you know of others that have it as I well. Because yeah. I used to... Oh, you know, I used to have it, you know, a lot, think about it a lot, just going, I'm going to get caught out at any minute now and people are going to say, you're not funny and you should never do stand-up. Yeah. Um, and then I, it was Magda Sabansky was the first one that I – she I think she might have written about it in her book or she did, talked about it in an interview, how she was just waiting for someone to come in and go, yeah, right. yeah. you're no good at this, get out. And I went, but what? Magda Sabansky, she's the yeah. funniest person ever. And yeah. if she's – and then, you know, I wow. started talking about it with other friends. So as, as the years have gone by, it's, you know, it's it's still there, mm. especially when I do something like if I get a new writing job yeah. or something like that. It's definitely still there, but it's not as prevalent as it was before because I talk about it more with yeah. And so yeah. many celebrities have come out to their credit and gone on the record saying how they just feel like, a, you know, a total fraud and they've realised everyone else is too and let's all just have fun together. So I think it's really good that people are talking about it because at its worst it can become completely debilitating. You know, in academia where I work, it's very, very problematic. Yes. You know, you've got amazing young researchers who are incredibly capable who end up suffering very severe depression and anxiety because they've convinced themselves they've got nothing to offer, which is really oh, sad. I can remember getting my TER, VCE result, and it was it was really good. Yeah. But seeing it and going, oh, I feel like I don't deserve that. Like I feel like someone's going to question why I got yep. that number. And mm. how weird is that? It's like I'd done everything to get the good result, but I still 
didn't believe that I deserved the number well, that the I got. that's the standard thing, that you put it down. So you're a super high achiever, but you put it down either to, to luck yes. or to just hard work. You don't have any natural ability. The favourite quote, which comes out over and over again, is somebody in the room for the new incoming students at the Harvard Business School. You know, you cannot get into the Harvard Business School without being the top of your game. And this woman every year says, how many of you think you're the one person in here as a result of administrative error? And two-thirds of the room put up their hand. Wow. They all think they're there because there was a mistake. They somehow got let in. You know, the process failed. They shouldn't be there. You know, two-thirds of the room say, yep, that's me. You found me out. I'm not meant to be here. Wow. Do you you think, though, because, you know, we've all said here that we've all felt this, you know, I felt like an entire career of skating by yeah. on <laughs> luck and, <laughs> and Jeff, this is the intervention where we <laughs> tell everybody. But, well, so what do you think the relationship is, though, between that and those moments that some, you sometimes have where you think, yeah, okay, I've got this. You, you know what I mean? Like that occasionally you'll be doing something and you just yeah. Yeah. suddenly realise, actually, I I'm understand awesome. this. Well, no, 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 I'm awesome, yeah. but you know what I mean? I, yeah. Yeah. It's under control. Got I know this, what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I guess they're just two different views of reality and each of us has an obligation to ourselves to think about which one of those is more likely to be, a, you know, a, a truer version of reality. And probably mm. if you've been doing a job for a while and everybody around you is telling you you're doing a good job, chances are the reality where you feel actually, you know, I'm reasonably good at this. I've, I've learned over the years I'm getting better and better, mm. that's probably closer to the reality than the voice in your head which pops up sometimes saying, you're terrible, you've got no idea. But it's all just perceptions, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we're all subject to the vagaries of our perceptions and it makes it really hard to know what's truth. But then, you know, what is truth anyway? We could go on for hours. Yeah. Well, you very, do a great job. <laughs> oh, Jess, so do you, mate. You're funny Thanks, as. Man. Thank you. <laughs> as for you, Jeff, well, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> we might see you again next week, Dr. Jen, we might not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.